I once heard a story about a theology professor who was studying very late into the night at the seminary library. The custodian came in to clean the library and noticed the professor sitting off to the side, and he asked what the professor was studying. The prof replied, well, I'm trying to understand the book of Revelation. The custodian responded, that's easy. I understand the book of Revelation. It tells us that the right team is going to win. That says it as well as it can be said. The last book in our Bibles tells us emphatically that the right team is going to win. Let's turn together to the very final book of Holy Scripture titled the book of Revelation. And you might find it interesting to know that the book of Revelation is the only book in the Bible which opens with a promise of blessing and closes with a promise of blessing. Chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Do you want to be blessed? Then read, hear, and keep the words of this book. Look at the last chapter, chapter 22. Right over near the end, not quite the final verse, but right near the end. Chapter 22, verse 7, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly or suddenly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. There is the promise again. The book opens with a promise of blessing and closes with a promise of blessing. And it is the only book in Scripture with such promises that sort of close off or capsulize a book. In light of this fact, it is sad how few people read or seek to understand the book of Revelation. It is truly a special book. I'm not implying that there, is a, there are degrees of inspiration or there's more inspiration or greater inspiration, but there is a uniqueness attached to this book so stated by the Lord himself. As I mentioned a moment ago, the purpose of the book is to assure all believers of the ultimate triumph of Jesus over all who resist him and his people. The opening line of the book gives us its theme. Back up to chapter 1, verse 1, opens with the words, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. That phrase can be taken two ways in the Greek text and in our English translations. The phrase can be taken as a revelation which comes from Jesus Christ or as a revelation which is about Jesus Christ, both of which are true. This book was revealed to the Apostle John by the Lord Jesus Christ, and the book is about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he is doing and is going to do. Historical tradition tells us that the beloved Apostle John was boiled in a vat of oil and banished to the island of Patmos to die. But he didn't die. Instead, while he was there, the resurrected, glorified Christ appeared to him to reveal the next set of events on the prophetic calendar. You may be noticed in the verses I read, both the open and at the close of the book, the term prophecy is used de denoting what kind of book this is. John received this revelation. 
He was instructed to write down the content of the interchange, chapter 1, verse 11, and the result is this book before us. The title Revelation means unveiling or disclosure. So this book is a disclosure and unveiling of the consummation of all things by Jesus Christ. The outline for the book is given to us by the Lord himself in chapter 1, verse 19, where Jesus says to John, Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the, and the things which will take place after this. Notice those three time denotations. The things which you have seen, that would be past tense for John. The things which are, that would be things present tense for John. And the things which will take place after this, that would be things in the future. That is the, the instruction John was given, and naturally, he obeyed and followed the instruction. And he wrote the book in exactly that manner. In chapter 1, John describes for us the things which he had seen. This revelation, uh, this, this presentation, this demonstration of the resurrected Christ, this appearance. In chapters 2 and 3, he describes for us things which are, that is, things present tense for John, seven literal churches of the first century that existed in John's day. And in chapters 4 through 22, he describes for us the things that will take place after this, things that would be future from John's point of view. The book was originally directed toward the seven churches of ancient Asia Minor, according to chapter 1, verse 11. But please hear this. Please understand that the contents of this book are important for and intended for every believer to understand. How do I know that? How can I say that? Let me show you how. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. After Jesus gives a message to the church at Ephesus, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, this message isn't just for the church at Ephesus. This is for anyone who has an ear to hear throughout all ages, anyone who would read this book and seek to understand it. It shows us that the message of this book is important for all of us. Look at verse 11, same chapter. <clears throat> he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's the same thought again. This is important for us, all of us. Anyone who has an ear ought to hear the message to, of the Lord Jesus to these seven churches, and not only the messages in chapters 2 and 3, but the message of the book of Revelation, which was given to these seven churches. This same phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear, is repeated in verse 29 of chapter 2, chapter 3, verse 6, 3, verse 313, and 322. So, we know with certainty that this book is relevant to us today. The Lord revealed this to John for the seven churches in ancient Asia Minor, but he made it clear that he was not limiting his message to those seven churches of the first century. The message of this book is for anyone throughout all ages who has an ear to hear. So let's back up to chapter 1 to begin our survey of this marvelous book. And uh, let me just emphasize the word survey. Unfortunately, there are so many issues that we are not able, that we can't get into because we're doing a survey. I know that, that it will probably raise more questions than can be answered, but we want to get uh, a feel for this book and an understanding of it as a whole, though time doesn't allow us to uh, mine out all the details in one message. But back in chapter 1, verse 9, 
I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God, of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. In this vision, John sees the Lord Jesus Christ moving among his churches to evaluate them, and he sees the Lord Jesus dressed in the garments of prophet, priest, and king. So he gives us a description, verse 14. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. That speaks of his pristine purity. The end of the verse says, His eyes were like a flame of fire. That speaks of the penetrating vision of the Lord Jesus and his ability to evaluate accurately because with his eyes of fire, he can pierce to the innermost recesses of our hearts to see any and every fatal flaw. Verse 15, his feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace. His voice is the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Remember, this is John, the one who placed his head on the chest of Jesus on the night of the Last Supper. But he had never seen Jesus like this, not even on the Mount of Transfiguration. I mean, John fell prostrate, just, he was just as if he were dead, he says. I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am who li- him who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. So write the things which you have seen, the things which are the things which will take place after this, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angelos, angeloi, plural, the angels, messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So this is the resurrected, glorified Christ moving among his churches to evaluate them, and the the evaluations are recorded in chapters 2 and 3. Chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel. This, again, is the Greek word angelos. It's messenger, the word messenger. I think it would be better translated that way here. This is, this is to the messenger of the church who was to, in turn, give this message to the church. I don't think it's an angel in view here. It's a human messenger. To the messenger of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Again, it's emphasized that Jesus walks in the midst of his churches and he knows everything that is going on in everybody's life. His, his evaluation is accurate because he's intimately involved. Verse 2, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. This church had four qualities that every church should have. Service, steadfastness, suppression of evil, strong doctrine. Service, steadfastness, suppression of evil, strong doctrine. This was a rare church even in the first century. 
And there are very few like it today. But the best part is verse 3. Jesus says, And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. In other words, everything they did, they did for the glory of Christ, which is the highest motivation in life. But there's one word absent in verses 1 through 3 that's not absent from verse 4. Verse 4, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. They had service, steadfastness, suppression of evil, and strong doctrine, but the inner spring of love had dried up. How about you? Have you left your first love? Remember, beloved, you and I are the church. We're it. It's not a building. It's, it's not wood or cement or carpet. It's, it's people. If you are not loving, our church is not loving. If our church is not loving, you are not loving. You and I are the church, and love is essential. The second church the Lord evaluated was the church at Smyrna. And there were no glaring flaws in this church. It was, it was a church being persecuted. And persecution purifies the church by weeding out the hypocrites and by purifying the lives of true believers. That's the church in Smyrna. So Jesus says to them in verse 10, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The Lord simply encouraged this persecuted church. No rebuke. No negative evaluation. The contrast is the next church, which was evaluated the church in Pergamos, verse 12, to the messenger of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know your works, and where you dwell where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. In the Old Testament, Balaam suggested to Balak that he caused the Israelite men to intermarry with the Moabite women to destroy the distinction between the people of God and those who are not the people of God. So it seems what the Lord is saying here is that you have some there who are beginning to compromise the distinction. They're they're involving themselves in the eating of meat offered idols, not buying it out on the, the market or out on the street, but going to the temple ceremony and participating in the feast with the unbelievers who were celebrating by sacrificing under their idols. So the Lord was saying, you have some there who are beginning to compromise and fall in love with the world and not maintaining the distinction between those who are the people of God and those who are not. The next church is the church in Thyatira, verse 18. To the messenger of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, his feet like fine brass. I know your works, your love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Maybe you noticed that this church had what Ephesus didn't have because they had love. But they didn't have what Ephesus did have, namely strong doctrine and high moral standards. Because in verse 20, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. This was a church that didn't confront sexual sin, didn't discipline sexual sin, and that's deadly in the life of a church. 
The next church is the church in Sardis, chapter 3, verse 1. <clears throat> to the messenger of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. This is a church that had a reputation for being alive. When people talked about this church in the community, they would say, wow, have you heard about the church in Sardis? It's the going thing in town. There are lots of things happening there, lots of activities. But this was a church busy being dead. You see, beloved, when the Lord wants to see how his church is doing, he doesn't look at the externals. He doesn't look at the activities. He checks the pulse. And this church had no pulse. They were content with programs rather than true spiritual life and purity. We need to be careful that we don't become like this. It would be very easy for us to be content with the ministries we have going. Well, we have this ministry, college ministry, and adult electives, youth program, children's ministries, etc. But the issue isn't just having these kinds of programs. The issue is what is happening in the lives of people in those ministries. The church in Sardis had a name that they were alive, but they were dead. People came for the worship gatherings, listened, talked and laughed together afterwards. But God wasn't in control of their lives. In verse 2, the Lord says, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. It's ironic to say this, but the Spirit of God could not get into the life of this church because he didn't fit into their programs and their organizational structure, and etc. The next church was the church in Philadelphia. This is the only other church of the seven which did not receive any rebuke because they had a love for and obedience to the Word of God. That comes out... In chapter 3, verse 8, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength. You have kept my word and not denied my name. Verse 10, because you have kept my word to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Twice the Lord states that this was a church faithful to the word, so the Lord has no rebuke. They loved the Word, evidently. They taught the Word. They desired the Word. They responded to the Word. They lived the Word. The final church the Lord evaluated was the church at Laodicea. Chapter 3, verse 14, To the messenger of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I, I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. This was a church that had mistaken material blessing with the pleasure of God. In other words, they thought that just because they had money and material things, God was automatically pleased with them. They made the assumption. But down in verse 20, Jesus says to this church, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Not at the door of your heart, by the way. The door of the church. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door... 
I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. That is an appeal from the Lord to get into his own church. Try to imagine that. Try to, try to imagine the Lord is, is excluded from his own church. And verse 22 ends this section by saying, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, most of us can hear with both ears, so there's a sense in which we're doubly responsible to hear all of these evaluations the Lord gave to the seven churches. That brings us to chapter 4, where John begins to describe the things which will take place after this. Between chapter 3 and chapter 4, there appears to be a huge time gap, and I'll explain why as the message unfolds. By the way, it's not uncommon at all for the Bible to do that. Just go back and read in the Old Testament prophets. Often a prophet would, in the same sentence, mention something about the first coming of Messiah and the second coming of Messiah, and there are, we know, are at least 2,000 years between them. Which is why in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus read from the prophet Isaiah, it's interesting to know that as he was reading, he stopped right in the middle of a verse and said, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. He didn't read the whole verse because the second part of it is about the second coming. But right in the middle of the same verse, there's a 2,000 year time gap in Isaiah's prophecy. So that seems to be what happens here between chapters 3 and 4. Why do, why do we believe, what is the evidence that there's a time gap? Well, Revelation 2 and 3 is all about churches. We just saw that. In fact, there are 19 references to the church in chapters 1 through 3. 19. But chapter 3, verse 22 is the last mention of Christ's church until we get over into the end of the book after the seven-year tribulation period. It's fascinating that the true church is nowhere present in chapters 6 through 18, which are all about the tribulation period on earth. What is the implication? Does this teach definitively this? No, but the implication is, from other passages of Scripture, the church has been raptured and is in heaven during the tribulation. Chapters 4 and 5 record for us the scene in heaven. So as we come to chapter 4, it is possible, depending on your eschatology, that the church has been raptured and rewarded. The next scene is in heaven. And we'll see evidence for that right in these chapters. But, but let's just jump in first before we talk about that evidence and just see what these chapters are about. They are about the worship going on in heaven. The theme of heaven is worship. And that's the theme of these two chapters. John says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. God is on his throne. He never ceases ruling. Verse 4 says, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. Now the question naturally arises, who are these 24 elders? What do they represent, or whom do they represent? I think the evidence points to the conclusion, if you look at all the options, and, and unfortunately, again, we don't have time to look at all the options, but I think the evidence points to the conclusion that the 24 elders are representatives of the church. What is the evidence for that? The very title elder has church significance. Elders are the shepherds in the church. Verse 4 says these elders are on thrones, they have white robes and crowns. 
All three of those are promised to the church throughout the New Testament. In fact, all three of those are promised to the church in Revelation 2 and 3. So think about this. If you're reading through this book and you're reading through chapters 2 and 3, messages to the churches, and throughout these messages to the churches, you have statements, be faithful and I will give you thrones. Be faithful, I'll give you white robes. Be faithful, I'll give you crowns. And you come to chapter 4 and you see a group of people in heaven on thrones with white robes and crowns. Duh. I mean, what are you going to conclude? This is the church. This is the promise. These were the promises to the churches. So these are probably representatives of the church. Verse 8, the four living creatures were also there, each having six wings and were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. When the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sit on the, sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. The casting of the crowns before the throne is a way to ascribe all glory to God as the sovereign one, the giver of all good gifts. So all of heaven is involved in worship in the Creator God, but then the worship is broken. Chapter 5, verse 1, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Interestingly, in the Roman world of the first century, wills, title deeds, were sealed with seven seals. So this this seems to be some kind of will or title deed, and we find as the story unfolds, it seems to be the title deed to the earth. Hold the thought, we'll come back to it. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Jesus takes the scroll. The title deed to the earth. And in chapter 6, every time Jesus peels back or breaks one of these seals, a judgment is unleashed on the earth to crush sin and rebellion and to begin the process of Jesus taking back the earth. With that, the tribulation begins. In chapters 6 through 18 of Revelation, we have recorded many details of the tribulation. The details line up exactly with Jesus' uh, sermon that he gave from the Mount of Olives, known as the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. And Jesus, in that sermon, talked about the events that will lead right up to his second coming. Thus, it is safe to conclude that these events, which parallel but just give more information, are events that will lead right up to the second coming of the Lord Jesus to planet Earth. Now, obviously, we can't cover all 13 chapters in this brief message, so what I want us to center in on is the Three major sections of this, uh, of th- this part of the book concerning the judgments. 
Chapter 6 deals with the seal judgments. Chapters 8 and 9, the trumpet judgments. Chapter 16, the bowl judgments. Remember, these bowl judgments are unleashed on planet Earth to crush sin and rebellion and to begin taking back planet Earth for the one to whom it belongs, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. This, in my opinion, begins what, what the Old Testament talks so much about, the day of the Lord, or the great outpouring of the wrath of God. There are three pieces of evidence for this. Proof number one, it is Christ, notice, it is Christ who breaks these seals. He is the source of the tragedies unleashed through the opening of these seals. Evidence piece number two, God is the one who determines the extent and effects of, of the famine of the third seal, as we, we'll see in a moment. This is God's doing, God's judgment. This isn't just sort of, you know, the world is out of control, natural consequences. This is God's doing. And evidence piece number three, the first four seals involve death by sword or war, famine, pestilence or plague, and wild beasts. And God specifically states in Ezekiel 14, 21, that those four things are instruments of his wrath. So this is the beginning of the Lord's wrath, the day of the Lord spoken of so often in Scripture. Verse 3, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery and red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and the people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. The turmoil begins as the world becomes dominated by war. Verse 5, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. Tremendous famine hits the earth. It is so severe that one meal of wheat or three meals of barley will cost an entire day's wage. Verse 7, When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the four living creatures saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed him. That figures. Death takes the body, Hades takes the soul. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. When this seal is broken, one-fourth of the world's population will die. Verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I heard under the altar the souls of those who had been slain, for the word of God, for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. And I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. And the sky receded as the scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. And said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb, for the day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? 
Things become so devastating at this point that people start begging the mountains and rocks to crush them so they might escape the wrath of Christ. The day is coming when the most valuable piece of real estate on planet Earth will be a cave. People will want caves, holes in the earth to try to hide. And that's only the seal judgments. In chapter 7, we see a multitude of Jews and Gentiles that will be, be redeemed out of this time period that's called in the Old Testament the time of Jacob's trouble. In chapter 8, we move into the trumpet judgments. Verse 1, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. The seal judgments have been so severe that when the seventh seal is opened, revealing the seven trumpet judgments, there is stunned silence in heaven. Remember, you and I know that the, the, the seal judgments are followed by trumpet judgments and bowl judgments, but the inhabitants of heaven didn't know that when this was revealed. So they, you know, there's a sense in which, you know, when this was unfolding, when this was being revealed to John, they wouldn't have known this was coming. So all of a sudden it's as if there is stunned silence in heaven. Verse 2, And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. These seven trumpets contain the seven trumpet judgments. Verse 7, The first angel sounded, hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. A third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, fell on a third of the rivers and springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. And the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened, and a third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. Chapter 9 continues the description. Verse 1, the fifth angel sounded, I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. The next several verses refer to demons being released during the tribulation to torment mankind. Verse 11 of this chapter says, And they had, a, had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek whose name, he has the name Apollyon. Abaddon means destruction. Apollyon means destroyer. So they, both, they basically both mean the same thing. This is massive destruction. Verse 12, one woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. The torment of this time will be so severe that verse 6, we didn't take the time to read it, verse 6 says that men will seek death and will not find it. When the sixth trumpet is sounded, an army sweeps across the earth, slaughtering one-third of humanity. But the amazing thing about all of this is what is said down at the end of the chapter, verse 20, <clears throat> but the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the worst works of their hands that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, wood which can neither see nor hear nor walk and they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. What a picture of the hardness of man's sinful heart. You would think this would break people. But here it says they would not repent. So the earth will be hit by the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and then over to chapter 16 for a quick look at the bold judgments. Chapter 16, verse 2. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, 
And a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast, those who worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea. It became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Now, now maybe at this point people would start thinking, this is, this is over the top. This is too harsh. So there's a little interlude. And I heard the angel of the water saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. And the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat. Now again, you would think that these people would repent of their sin, but look at the rest of the verse. They blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. It's unimaginable. Verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. His kingdom became full of darkness. They gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. Verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. Its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And this is described on through the rest. In verse 16, they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Verse 7, the seventh angel poured out his bowl in the air and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings. And there was an, a great earthquake, such, as, such a mighty and great earthquake as has not occurred since men were on the earth. And then it says this, verse 20, Then every island fled away, the mountains were not found. Great hail fell from heaven upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. There's not an exact agreement on the weight, but somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 pounds. 100 pound hailstones. Those are the horrors of the tribulation. But that's not the end of God's judgment. In chapter 19, we see the second coming of Christ. Chapter 19, verse 11. I saw heaven open. Behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. Notice that at his second coming, Jesus is coming to judge and make war with those who have rejected him. Verse 15. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. That is a terrifying description, beloved. It is stay, saying God's wrath against sin is so great that people who reject Christ will, in a sense, be thrown into a judgment vat, like a wine vat, and Jesus will trample them and totally crush them. Verse 16 he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I saw an angel standing in the sun. He cried with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God. Verse 19, I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. They're gathered together for the battle of Armageddon and they are gathered specifically. Understand this. They are gathered in Israel specifically because they know the Messiah is coming back to Israel and they think in their insanity they can somehow prevent him. They're gathered to fight him, but it'll be no fight. Verse 20 describes it pretty casually. Then the beast was captured. 
and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast. Those who worshipped his image, these two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. All the previous judgments in the book of Revelation were carried out by angels, but this one is carried out by Jesus himself. The king comes to rule the earth. All of his enemies have been destroyed except one, Satan himself. And since Jesus is coming to set up his kingdom, the final rebel has to be dealt with. In chapter 20, verse 1, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. This is for the kingdom, the thousand-year kingdom. And to make sure we get it, you ought to just take the time, and we don't have the time, to read this section and notice how many times God says thousand years, just so we don't miss it. And after the thousand-year kingdom reign of Christ, Satan is going to be loose temporarily. And he will gather together all the rebels for one last attempt to thwart God's program. Where do the rebels come from? Those who trust Christ during the tribulation and live will enter the kingdom in their natural bodies. They will have children, their children will have children, and so on for a thousand years. And some of the children born of the saints will be rebellious, but they will conform externally to Christ's reign because it is repeatedly stated he's going to reign and rule with a rod of iron. So when Satan is released from the pit, he will organize all those who have conformed externally only to Christ, like Judas, and he will organize revolt. Verse 9, they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And then in at the end of the chapter, there's a description of the great white throne judgment. It's not a judgment to determine who will go to heaven. No one at the great white throne goes to heaven. The reason they are judged according to their works is because their works will prove they were never born of God, and also their works will determine the degree of the, of the punishment they will experience. It's an awful scene, but it's followed by a glorious scene. Chapter 21, verse 1, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Beloved, that is what heaven is all about. That is what eternity is all about. God fully manifesting himself to us and dwelling with us in unrestricted glory. God's presence is the primary attribute of heaven. God's unveiled glory and verse 4 says, God himself will wipe away every tear. Tears of adversity, tears of loneliness, mistreatment, sadness, brokenness, remorse, disappointment. And verse 8 warns, but the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. These works indicate whether or not an individual truly knows Christ. In chapter 22, the description of our eternal home continues. Skip over to chapter 22, verse 12, or verse, verse 1, and then we'll skip to verse 12. He showed me a pure 
river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing. This is the Greek root word therapeuo, something that's therapeutic, not healing in the sense of sickness, but something that enriches life. It's, it's God's way of trying to describe how enriched our existence will be. Verse 3, there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these, to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And in light of all that we've seen in this book, it's no wonder that verse 17 closes this way. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. It's as if the book closes with an invitation. Do you want to be in this eternal place of bliss? Do you thirst for eternal life? Then come. Come to Jesus Christ. Come to Him wholeheartedly. Come to Him humbly. Come to Him repentantly. And tell him you thirst for eternal life. Tell him you thirst to have your sins forgiven. Tell him you thirst for his salvation. It's the appropriate way to end the book. So if you are here without a relationship to Jesus Christ and you thirst, then come to him. Come to him. So you can be a part of Revelation 21 and 22, the eternal bliss that is described in our eternal home. Let's bow together as we close. Father, we realize we've only scratched the surface of this marvelous book, but hopefully it will just at least pique an interest in us to do as we are exhorted to do in the beginning and end of the book, to read it and to hear it and to keep the things written in it. So give us greater insight, understanding of this marvelous book. Protect us from error. It's a, a book that's difficult sometimes to grapple with. But grant us the diligence to look at it, to read it, to seek to understand it with the humility to acknowledge that we maybe don't always have a, a full handle on everything, but eventually all of it will come to pass. And we know that what is described here at the end will be true. We will dwell in a place where there will be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. His servants shall serve him, and we will see your face. We want to join our voices in with the 17th verse of the, this final chapter. Let him who hears say, come. We've heard, we've heard this book in this quick overview message. And so we say, come. Lord Jesus, come. And initiate all of the events that will unfold as described in this book. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.